Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror and Miguel Delaney of the Independent. The bookies are paying out on Chelsea's champions. Can't blame them, can you? Elsewhere, the fallout has just begun. Arsene Wenger has a two-year contract on the table, but will he sign it, Darren? Well, that's a big question uh, that is going to face Arsenal fans as well as Arsenal at the end of the season. I think he should sign it. I think he should stay. There is a feeling, obviously, that he might not want to stay by the end of the season and get away from all the nonsense that surrounds the club. And I kind of have a bit of sympathy with him in so much as no other manager is judged from game to game like Arsene Wenger. It's either brilliant or a crisis. I think rather than have a situation like that, why can we not have a situation where we examine the reasons why Arsenal are failing? Look at the reasons why Ozil goes missing, why Xhaka's not got any discipline, why players are shirking their individual responsibilities during matches, why they can't go through the winter months without retaining their steel like Chelsea do and Manchester City do. Why aren't we looking at those reasons why, instead of just going with the view of the baying mob, that he's got to go because he's clueless? He's clearly not clueless. You might argue that he's maybe not having the same impact that he used to on the club, but replace him. But no other manager has that amount of influence on every level of a football club, basically since Alex Ferguson. Well, that's what I was about to say, just in relation to all the, kind of, all the other issues that we look at. When you have a manager that's that controlling, mm. really, they all keep coming back to him. And, I mean, in terms of why he should sign a new contract, one of the few reasons I actually think he should sign is because, suddenly, there aren't that many top-class replacements because, basically, Arsenal have missed both. I think that that in itself actually sums up... I mean, it was probably 2013 when, really this argument fairly started that maybe it's time to move on. It just occurred to me when I was doing my match report on the game on Saturday, how many times have I actually written this piece? This, even, even the pattern of the game against Chelsea, it was the same game. Chelsea win, of course, and as, as seems to be the case in 80% of Chelsea Arsenal fixtures, there's always some kind of moment of controversy that's just enough to kind of mitigate some of the debate, although this time even Wenger wasn't using the goal as an excuse. And I think the Lanza goal, to be honest, was kind of 50-50 either way for me. I could understand if it wasn't given, could understand why it was. Mm-hmm. But what was really, really frustrating about that was, rather than use that goal as an angry, rather be angry about it and get a response, the whole performance is just so meek. Yes, yes. Mm. I just can't see, if it hasn't changed in four years, when's it going to? But well, they, they, and, but... and if it does change, we've had Barry McLean on already. Uh, he's asking, well, if Wenger does go, 
who takes over. And that's the question, because I remember the years when people used to suggest Roberto Martinez and Owen Coyle should take over. You know, exactly, that ended well. And if you look around Europe, Diego Simeone, I keep hearing mentioned, well, he's more Mourinho than Wenger. Yeah, he doesn't have that commitment to free-flowing football that Wenger has. Yeah. So if you take him on, you're changing the culture of the club and the way that they play. Thomas Tuchel committed to Borussia Dortmund. Roberto Mancini, well, is a very combustible figure. He's, he's, also, well, he's looking around with in, increasing desperation. Isn't he? He's going to turn up at Leicester again soon. Yeah. Pellegrini exactly. doesn't have the authority. You look at what he did at Manchester City and you just see that inside the dressing room they didn't see him with the same authority that Pep Guardiola has. And so you look at the potential replacements for Arsene Wenger and they aren't necessarily there. Mm. Andrew Bygate has come up with the name Tony Adams. Perhaps you need someone, though, who understands what Arsenal Football Club represents. Now, is it just a modern business? It's got mm. £225 million in the bank. Stan Kroenke doesn't like spending money. Or is it a proper football club which can have a real go at winning the Premier League? But, but this is the issue with Arsenal. There's no reason why those two factors can't be reconciled because Arsenal have the resources, the size, the location. They have everything going for them to be one of the biggest clubs in the world, <laughs> to be a proper super club up there with... Actually, the only thing against them is the fact that the Premier League itself has so many clubs like them. There's about four, five, six around that level. But even still, it feels like so much at Arsenal at the moment is governed by an insecurity or fear, well, if we get rid of anger, then, you know, we might lose what we have, rather than actually looking to push and maximise what they have. Mm. John Creese has said, what about Allegri? I, I was about to say that, actually, yeah. And I also think, with Allegri as well, he's got the type of personality that he's quite good at coming in. I mean, because obviously, what's going to happen when Wenger goes, it's such a massive change in the history of the club that there will be, like when Ferguson left, there will be difficulties even beyond the manager. And I think the problem United made was they didn't necessarily appoint a personality who was good enough to kind of just, uh, calm enough to kind of take all that in and keep everything composed. Whereas I think Allegri, as you've seen with Conte leaving Juventus, even if he wasn't there as long as Wenger, obviously, but there was huge success, I think Allegri is the right sort of personality to just almost you know, facilitate things for two, three years if Wenger were to go until maybe a more longer-term option presents itself. I think you have to be really careful with certain names because as we've seen with lesser high-profile clubs, Swansea, Southampton, you have to have the right fit. Mm. You can't just throw people who have done a good job elsewhere into yeah. clubs because they aren't necessarily, I don't think, going to be the right fit for that club. And the reason why the wheels have come off for Swansea is because they have believed every fit would be the right fit and have come unstuck. Southampton continue to impress and improve because the next manager is the right manager in line with what they are trying to do. Arsenal needs somebody who is going to come in and dovetail with where the club want to go. Is it Max Allegri? Well, he's done well at Juventus, but there's no certainty that he's going to go to Arsenal and be a good fit, and that's what it needs to be. Why then, and this begs the question, why is Conte such a good fit for Chelsea? I think Conte's done so well now that it's underestimated what a big job he has. I think that's the case of a manager just being his personality being forceful enough, his abilities being strong enough that... He was able to overcome certain difficulties. I mean, the thing about football, I suppose, I mean, and this is the issue with Arsenal, there's never going to be certainty in anything. Mm. But at some point, you have to roll the dice. And I think, well, appointing Conte wasn't rolling the dice because he, he had such a good record. 
But, um, but it wasn't just that he had a good record. I mean, Conte was a coach. When he yeah. went to Juventus, Juventus had been struggling. They hadn't yeah. won the league for years. He came in and he told people that he would improve the players like Bonucci, who had been derided by a lot of people in Italy at the time. It was very similar to what he's done with David Luiz at Chelsea. Now, he moulded an underachieving group of players and turned them into champions, not just once, but on a number of occasions. That's what Chelsea saw in him when they appointed him. And that's exactly yeah. what he'd done, because he didn't manage to get the players that he wanted at the start of the season. So he said, I'll work with what I got. He tried 4-2-4, the system that he originally wanted to play. That didn't work. So we switched. He didn't go, I need better players, I need more money. He said, I'm going to work with the players that I have and I'm going to turn them into an effective unit. And that's exactly what he's done. Really interesting piece in your paper today on the way that he dealt with Costa. I raised my voice and the player understood. That tells you he doesn't take any prisoners, does he? And there again is the, the, the point I'm trying to make. I think when you bring a, a manager into a club like an Arsenal, like mm. a Chelsea, they need to have authority. If there is one thing I'll put my hands up on, it would appear that Arsene Wenger doesn't have that authority. He has a standing, he has the respect for what he's achieved at the club. Does he get stuck into players? Does he raise his voice? The talk is that he doesn't go into dressing rooms and peel the wallpaper off the walls like Sir Alex Ferguson yeah. used to. But, but another connected issue as well, and in relation to Costa's coaching, is that most of the top modern managers, like from Simeone even is a different sort of tactician, to Conte, to Guardiola. They're so hands-on every, in every aspect of, kind of what their players are doing now. And Wenger, what he does with his players, is, is it was revolutionary 20 years ago, but now it just looks a bit all out. And I think they're being caught out in that way, that there's just not the same sophistication in terms of what he's doing as to what Chelsea are doing, what City are doing, even if they had problems too. 30 points better off than at this stage of the season, last season. What has actually happened within that team is it one component that he's worked on, or is it just a collective improvement, mega improvement? I think it's probably everything, and just that the formation that's been given such attention, that was almost just the final key issue. So many elements were already correct in terms of the fitness, his man management, the kind of the focus he gave everyone again. But in those first few games of the season, and you could see it like in the opening game against West Ham and some of their early wins before they had that Liverpool game, it still wasn't quite right, there were a few things missing. But then after the Arsenal disaster the first time, the 3-0, as he admitted on Friday, actually, they'd barely worked in that formation beforehand. He decided to try it mid-game. It was in his mind. And it was in his mind, obviously, because he could see almost. And that's almost that kind of that quality coach's extra perception. that you could, you, He knew something was there. So went with his gut and went with it. And that's been the final ingredient. But I, do, I think it's a mix of things. I agree. I think... It is a mix of things. I think one of the biggest things is the removal of Jose Mourinho because well, yeah. he was so good for the club, but the players literally fell out with him. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because now you look at the individual players. Matic, last season he was treading water. This season he looks like Robocop. You know, mm. He's kept on the Fabregas on the bench for so long he's grown a beard, I think, <laughs> as far as the individual players are concerned. They've got their form, but Hazard looks like the player of the year from last season. You could possibly chastise that group of players for turning it in under Mourinho last season, but you have to give them credit for the way that they've turned it back on and have absolutely gone streets ahead of everyone else. But, Sean, we're going to go no further than Golo Kante for Player of the Year, yeah. are we? I think I, I saw a stat at the weekend, just under 70% win percentage. It's, uh, Unreal. <laughs> I, I think that other one has been, has been knocked around a bit, that he's made more tackles in a year and a half than any other player in the, the last, last three, three seasons. seasons. Which is, I mean... <laughs> And like, I don't, it's not just the tackles. What really stands out, actually, I thought more so in the Liverpool game on Tuesday and even on Saturday. And he was, which is saying something because he was sensational on Saturday. But just the way, 
a player thinks that he's kind of clear of him, and it's when he just charges in out of nowhere. Yes. And just he's all over them, just completely dominates them. It must be if you're playing against that, it must be just so demoralising. Well, mm. you look at that midfield up against the Arsenal midfield of Iwobi, Oxlade Chamberlain, I think it was, and who was the other one? Um, Coughlin. Coughlin. Coughlin, yeah. I mean, it was like Barney against Godzilla. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> you were at Tottenham at the weekend. Yes. Now they're at Liverpool. They're still hanging on to the coattails, nine points. Mm. What's your impression of the current Tottenham side? You know, they're going very well. Can they sustain it? Yes, I think they can, because they're defensively solid. The best defence in the Premier League so far this season, 16 goals conceded, Chelsea have conceded 17. And they've lost key players through the campaign as well. Alderweireld they lost, Danny Rose they lost. Now they're without Jan Vertonghen, and yet there is still a solidity about that defence. That's what wins you titles, a good, solid defence, and the protection for that defence as well, which they have in Victor Wanyama, who's played every game this season and is... OK, Kanti, you're absolutely right as the player of the year, but Wanyama's been the bargain of the season at £9 million. Alongside him, Dembele holds the ball up so well. There is a solidity to that team that allows the creative players to go and express themselves. That's the reason why I think that they will be there. They may not have the resources that City have. They may not be as spectacular as City or Arsenal mm. or Liverpool. But I think they have a solidity and a consistency that is going to keep them in there when other teams, other more expensive teams, have gone. Would you expect them to win at Liverpool, Meeks? On form, yes. But I think the odd thing about Liverpool is that, pretty at the moment under Klopp, that they're better against good teams because they have something to react to. The onus isn't on them to suddenly dominate a game and to slightly change their style. And in a certain way, the way Spurs have played, but most played all the way, you'd expect Pochettino to change up for precisely this reason. But because of the way Spurs press, that could suit Liverpool because it led them to play on the, on the counter a bit more. And I think there will be a reaction for Liverpool. I think there has to be a reaction. I was actually, obviously I was at the Chelsea game on Saturday, so I didn't uh, only cut the highlights of the Liverpool game. But I was surprised at how meek they looked, given that they did look back to their best some way on Tuesday against Chelsea. It, it, it sounded like... Clock really wired into the players for the first time, probably. He did. He protected them after the FA Cup tape. was the shadow side against was it Wolves when yeah. they lost against Wolves. He came out afterwards and did a really gracious flash interview where he said, it's my fault, blame me, not the players. But afterwards, he basically lost it and then the dressing room tore into them. Are they going to respond by beating Spurs? I'm not so sure because you look through that team when there are weaknesses. The goalkeeper looks weak, whichever one you play. Yeah. Um, the defence, they look porous. In midfield, there's nobody to compare with Wanyama at the moment. Coutinho is a wonderful player but doesn't look back to his best since he's come back from injury. Roberto Firmino looks a bit meek against Hull, a side fighting for their lives at the bottom of the Premier League. They failed to get a shot on target during the first half. I think their confidence is so fragile that it could be a difficult evening for them. I don't know if it's a late game. It's a late game, it's yeah, late yeah. game. It could be a difficult evening for them against Spurs because Spurs will set out first and foremost to frustrate them. And I think the more they get desperate, that may give Spurs the opportunity to take advantage. I don't think it's any guarantee they'll get back to winning ways against Spurs. Damilara has been on it. He says Liverpool are like the British weather. You never know what you're going to get from one day to another. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty spot on, isn't it? Yeah. Look, the one thing about actually the weekend, I have to say, I did think Hull were precisely the wrong sort of team for Liverpool to play just because the way that manager sets up the way Liverpool have already struggled against well-organised defensive teams this season. I mean, they've dropped more points against the, quote, bottom 14 mm -hmm. than anyone else. But at the same time, you would still have expected them to overwhelm Hull a little bit more. Mm. And that's worrying that that didn't come. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, with Marco Silva, just as an aside, 
I'm not so sure he's going to be there in 18 months. He has something about him uh, since he took over. They've won all four of their home games. Mm. Uh, they've beaten Manchester United. They've given Chelsea a game OK. They lost in that match. And they're at Arsenal on Saturday. Oh, I could see them... That's all set up, isn't it? I can see them frustrating mm -hmm. Arsenal and, again, us having this conversation next Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm nervous as the Emirates going to be that way. Well, absolutely. And, listen, this guy is a potential star. All the players know their jobs. Suddenly, Hull have gone from looking like the easiest teams or one yeah. of the easiest teams to play against in the Premier League to one of the toughest. I think that Saturday is no gimme whatsoever for Arsenal. I think Silva is a special coach. Mm. And all the people who said... What on earth is he doing? What does he know about this league? Mm. I think they may well be changing their opinions because he is going to be at a bigger club before long. Yeah, we'll go on to the relegation area a bit later. Sassan Benabeci asks, what do you think of Manchester City, but also specifically Gabriel Jesus? I think actually, because of his age, even though he was you know, seen as one of Brazil's brightest prospects, but because maybe he hadn't played too many high-profile games beyond his club, um, I think it was almost underestimated the fact that City, out of all the top six sides, were the only one in this January window to significantly strengthen. And maybe the expectation would have been that they were kind of signing a backup to Aguero when it's become clear that this is actually precisely the sort of forward that Guardiola wants rather than something like it, because he just so obviously fits with the way Guardiola wants his, uh, his front three to move and press and attack in a way that Aguero just doesn't. So I do think it actually could be a bit of a transformative moment for City this season. I mean, you can see it just by signing this one player, who's obviously a player very suited, but there's been that extra momentum as well because of the signing itself. And I think that's been propelled as well by that late goal. I mean, it's almost the perfect way to win after that as well. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of another player who's made such an immediate impact. Now, even in that eight minutes that he had a substitute in his first game, you yeah, thought, hang on, something special here. When he was 17, he was told to go away, work on his left foot, work on his heading. Mm. Sounds like he listened. <laughs> it's interesting because we've both seen, we've all of us seen lots of games, lots of new Neymars, new Messis, whatever else, and lots of new players who have come with huge fanfare mm. into the Premier League, who've been OK, mm. not all that. This guy, we, I was sitting next to a couple of colleagues the other day at West Ham, and we were looking at each other and this guy is just amazing. He is amazing. Yeah. And for £27 million, <laughs> absolutely. For £27 million as well, he looks a bargain. Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody at another club earlier today who was saying they look to have found a sensational footballer. And I think as far as City are concerned, you could see any player who keeps Sergio Aguero out of the team has to be a special mm -hmm. player. Mm -hmm. And this boy, he's fast, he's got a fantastic final ball, he's deadly in front of goal. There was an, a ball inside the fullback that he played for one of Manchester City's goals against West Ham the other day. That was simply sensational. And in the press conference afterwards, we asked Pep Guardiola about him and he said, look, He's come from Brazil. He wants to be one of the best players in the world and we want to help him to do that. Sometimes players can come over to this country and take a bit of time to adapt. He doesn't need that time. He's a street fighter. So what does that mean for Aguero? Man City went into crisis management PR mode, mm. didn't they say, you know, he's going to stay, he's got his three years on his contract. The reality is they'll all sit down in the summer and work something yeah. out, won't well, they? Even the fact that they sat down in December, or, or sorry, a few weeks ago, it was, it was conspicuous and slightly unusual that the manager would meet with the agent and the player in that way. Mm. I think there's been clearly an issue for some of even the way Guardiola's spoken. I think it just is a bit of a mismatch. I mean, I think 
If you look at the way uh, all of Guardiola's teams play, basically, even Messi at Barcelona, Messi, when they lost the ball, he would have that five-second burst and go for a player. Now, when the ball went past him, he would relax again, walk away, but mm. look to pick up position. Whereas Aguero does that without the pressing. Yes. And it just it means there is something missing in the team. And if that's going to be the case, I mean, is Aguero, the best role you could see for him in a city side with Jesus like that is basically some sort of impact so we might get a goal. And that's not really a role for someone of... Uh, Aguero's ability. Absolutely. In a mix zone, Mike, this is key because we've been in mix zones and what we know about working mix zones, the area where the players pass rovers afterwards. The human zoo. The human zoo, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, the big players tend not to stop. They either got a call, they got to see their families, they don't speak any English, or they got their headphones on. And Aguero chose to stop and he chose to give the interview which has obviously made all back pages today, suggesting, not suggesting, he said, I will see what City want to do with me in the summer. That's quite key. You know, he obviously then ended it with, I'm very happy at the club, blah, blah, blah. But that message that he wanted to get out, he managed to get out and it's gone all around the world. What's quite, also quite key is that earlier this season, because this hasn't just happened in yeah. isolation, he dropped him against Barcelona. And then obviously there was that suspension at a time when they needed him and they lost a game which could have obviously got them back into well, a bit closer in the title race. It's quite clear, as you say, he doesn't see Aguero as one of his players is going forward. And in that press conference I mentioned a second ago, when we asked him about Gabriel Jesus, he said he, Sané and De Bruyne, the future of Manchester City. That's the word he used. So I don't think that meeting came in isolation. Mm. I think there'll be more meetings. I think Aguero is a player, he's a superstar. We know, 28 years of age, he cannot be on the bench at a football club. He's got mm. to be somewhere where he's playing week in, week out. And I think there'll be no shortage of clubs willing to give him that opportunity. Mm. As our Mushtaq makes the point, using Arsenal as the example, you, know, you need a certain mentality to win a title. It seems to me at the moment that City are almost in a halfway house. You know, you could look at the front four and think, well, well that's working. Yeah. The back four? Yeah, I, I was surprised that they never got the centre-half or the defensive midfield that they clearly need. And they do have this kind of strange solution at the moment, which, which is working on Yaya Torre, like an attacking mm. midfielder like Yaya Torre. Would you give him a new contract? I think I would, actually. For, for all the kind of discussion about Yaya Torre over the past two years and all that, and the accusations have been immersed in all this, I think the way he's responded to the situation has actually been quite admirable. You know, beyond his agent's nonsense and all that. But the fact that he's kind of took his punishment earlier this season, he's knuckled down, and now he's a key influence at City again. And I think that, that has to be respected. Mm. When we look at you know, the rest of it, Bournemouth away next for City. Are Bournemouth the team which is going to sleepwalk into disaster? I think they'll have enough, I have to say. I think Leicester are already a team that have kind of slept to walk in, in, <laughs> into, uh, into trouble. You often see this thing at this stage of the season where there's a mid-table team that just goes in that kind of prolonged slump. But I think there's just still enough about them. I slightly disagree. I slightly disagree. I, I, in so much as I'm worried for Bournemouth, mm. I hope they do stay up. The Premier League needs clubs like Bournemouth in it mm. who are defying expectations to, to kind of stay afloat. I know people may come on and say they've got big investors and whatever else, but they're still a, a small club who are punching above their weight with largely the back four that they came up with. My worry about them is, what, 16 goals they conceded in the first 12 games, 31 goals they've conceded in the last 12, and six they conceded against Everton on Saturday, they look in trouble. They look like a side that doesn't know how to defend and invariably teams in relegation trouble are teams that don't know how to defend. There's two points separating six teams at the moment but they're just another five points off and 
facing City side who know how to score goals, they will open them up. That forward line will open Bournemouth up at the weekend. What about, you know, you mentioned that Everton win, okay, four goals for Lukaku, 16 in all now. I look at him. And I see a transfer waiting to happen. Yeah. So, you know, sorry, Everton fans. Well, but... I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen in the summer. I mean, the story in the summer was that he, he still wanted to go to Chelsea until it became, a trans- it became apparent that Chelsea couldn't move for him or, wasn't, or they were never going to meet. Uh, Everton just yeah, refused to sell. Yeah, basically. And then, you know, Lukaku went into coma and said, right, I'm not moving. You know, I'm fully committed to this season, obviously. If there's any, if there's any doubt about that. Mm. And he's proven that. Mm. But I know he's still, he's still, despite all the debate about himself and Mourinho as well, he, he's still in regular contact with Mourinho. They're, they're kind of friends in that way, texting each other. He would suit. It'd fit Manchester Yeah, he would actually. Yeah, it fit that kind of a. Because, like, I mean, I think there's, as we saw against Leicester, there's a bit more nuance to United's play now. But a lot of Mourinho's attacking is still based on kind of. He doesn't like to get a ball up to kind of a big centre mm. forward mm. in the way he did like, 10 years ago with Drogba. Mm. And Lukaku would fit that mould in, in a way that uh, Ibrahimovic does as well. But here's the thing uh, Mourinho's already said, I'm going to trigger Ibrahimovic's extension. Ibrahimovic is 35, he'll be 36, he will not be sitting on the bench. Big players don't sit on the but bench. Uh, Lukaku won't want to sit on the bench. True. Sorry. But there was, there was actually there was a few Swedish journalists at the game yesterday. We were just discussing the Latin situation, particularly in light of the. Uh, you know the rumours in Napoli, and there a few of them are actually quite convinced it'll be USA next for Zlatan, and maybe next season, basically because of what he's looking. Even though he's obviously still, you could see him at an LA Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, and it's very crucial to his personal business empire. Essentially, you know, being a United is one part of it, even though he's still obviously still a top class player. But that, that's still central to being a super club like United, one of the most famous in the world, is still central to his business. Well, uh, I mean, that's the point. I think Zlatan would have to not be there for Lukaku to go. Yeah, Chelsea yeah. do want him, and I think they'll come back for him as well. Both those clubs, as you say, there is more nuance to his play. But like Aguero, Lukaku cannot go from being a monster at Everton to being on the bench at either of the big mm. clubs. He has to go somewhere yeah. and play. So if he does go to Chelsea, they may well revert to their 4-2-4 formation that Conte wanted to play. Um, if he does go to United, it would have to be would Zlatan prepare to step aside and let him play? Maybe go to LA Galaxy, as you say, or not, as the case may be. Mm. But I think he has to go somewhere he's going to play. United, top four? Actually, I find myself changing my opinion on this every single week. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard because there is, there is such a swing. Every week seems to be just swing in terms of... Uh, well, it's almost actually two, three-game sets. There's just some swing. And you're not going to say a club's in crisis, but just the feel around them changes. Yeah. Well, um, Liverpool were, were the champions of the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I knew, yeah, I knew, I knew you Galactic champions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I think United need to step up maybe what, what could decide it. Even though Chelsea are probably going to win the title on the basis of their wins against lesser teams, United record actually against their other top six guys isn't brilliant, and they're quite low in that little mini league table. And I think they probably need to up their performance in those games. And obviously, one issue they've had is they went to draws against lesser sides as well. But on the trajectory of current sides, they look like they've more to come than either Liverpool or Arsenal right now. Mm. Other end of the table, you look at Palace. Uh, called in for a 7am crisis meeting on Sunday morning. They looked a shambles, frankly, against Sunderland. I know. I was watching the highlights and I was thinking to myself, David Moyes has had a real touch. He's managed to sell a player he signed for £1.5 million, or Sunderland signed for £1.5 million, to Palace for £14 million. <laughs> and then he's gone to Palace and stuffed them 4-0. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Van on here last week, you know, we were saying, look, he just can't defend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, 
Allardyce stayed up with Sunderland with Van Holt in his team. So somehow Allardyce believes that he can get something out of that player. What's quite interesting is, I know you look at Palace now and they do look at shambles, as you rightly say, but I look back at when Allardyce went to Sunderland. He went there in an October of 2015. A month later, they went to Everton and were beaten 6-2. And on that day, they looked even worse than Palace mm. looked on Saturday. And Allardyce basically recalibrated that team and got them to survive very comfortably. Mm. He said after they lost at home to Everton the other day, that Palace lost at home to Everton the other day, I think it will go to the wire. And I think he's right. I think it will take a bit of time for him to get that team together. But I think he'll find the right formula. And I still think that Palace have got a contribution to make to that race. What about, what about Sunderland, Miguel? Do you think that was a, a bit of a turning point for them? Yeah, well, I think maybe even came earlier the turning point because if you look back in October as well, that team looks dismal. And Moy, Moyes looked as if kind of... It did look at that point, really look as if you know, the whole United experience pretty much destroyed his career and everything he had about him. I mean, what was always so credited about Moyes' team in the past, particularly Everton, was that they were hard to beat, they were respect, even if they weren't always the best to watch. There was just that reliability and organisation to him. And I think that's why he seems to have recovered at Sunderland now. But it's interesting, I mean, I suppose what no one could have expected in this relegation battle is obviously every team is going to change manager, but the impact of two managers specifically and the way Clement and Silva, they haven't just improved the teams, they've actually made, made them such different pro propositions and it could well mean that the relegation battle is much more interesting than what happens mm. at the top. I've written about that myself, I, I think Clement's gone in there with Makaleli, two respected figures mm. and they've made an instant impact. Swansea under Bob Bradley, forget Bob Bradley's nationality and whatever else, at that time they were low on confidence, mm. low on morale, they were an utter shambles and teams couldn't wait to play them. Same with Hull. Mike Phelan, good guy, great coach, utterly unable to stop the fall mm. into relegation trouble and again, teams couldn't wait to play them. Now they don't want to play Hull. Now they don't want to play Swansea because both those teams are far better at the back, far more potency up front. Umanias at, at Hull as an example. Uh, Everton couldn't get a game. Kuma couldn't get him out of the door fast enough. He's now scored against Man United and Liverpool. That side Hull are going to make another con big contribution to the fight for survival. You saw Leicester mm. yesterday, Miguel. All the wheels have fallen off there. Yeah. They've got Swansea on Sunday. If they lose there, they are banging it, aren't they? Well, if, if they lose there, you would wonder whether someone has to make one of the hardest, maybe saddest decisions in football, which is potentially sacking Ranieri less, yeah, le yeah, le less than a year after a miracle. But, I mean, the thing about yesterday was, for the first 40 minutes or whatever the United goal came was, they, they were actually, they, were, they did look good, they were look kind of organised, they, they were actually posing a bit of a threat, and as soon as that goal went in, collapse. And I, that, that's probably the biggest worry of all, because, you know, any team can suddenly start a game well, but it was the fact their response to it was so, so meek, so loose, and it does suggest big problems there. Everyone brings up Kante with Astor, but I think that this game actually showcased exactly why he's missing. Yeah, we, we've all been around, and when you get stories, well-sourced stories mm. coming out of a dressing room, that mm. people are at each other's throats, they're, they're dissing the manager, mm. you've got a real issue there. I love you using the word dissing, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right. You know, all of those stories that you point out, colleagues of ours being able to write about, to investigate, leaks from dressing rooms that are always a sign of an unhappy mm. ship. I'm glad you mentioned Kante because 
Yes, he, he is a massive player and he is going to win the Player of the Year award again, hopefully. And, you know, he will also win the league again. But I wonder if that's an excuse that Leicester have clung to for a long yeah. time, a ready-made excuse. But, yeah. He was half their team. But, but, the, the one issue I thought yesterday, if you look you know, at his first goal yesterday, Hoot had to, had to come about, he had to run about 20 yards to try and meet Mkhitaryan. He missed it. United scored, that was that. Last season, basically, because they had Kante there, the problem with Hoot and Morgan is that they're not very mobile, but they are, when, when, they're, allowed, when they're allowed to just stand and be strong, they're very effective defenders. They're not allowed to do that now because of no Kante. And in front of that now, it doesn't release drink water. Drink water doesn't have enough freedom as he did last year, so he, he's not able to pass. Down. So the whole team is kind of, it just isn't able to work the same and, way. And, and you've also got hasn't, hasn't Mar- adapted. You've also got Mares mm. looking like one season one. Yeah. Well, exactly. I think the point I was going to make about Kante was that we obviously mm. know about the, the contribution in tactical terms that mm. he gives to the team, and, and that's it, un, it, you know, undisputed. But I think other players are not doing their jobs, but, but that's and that's why when you point to Mahrez, sorry, yeah. Mings, and you point to Vardy, you know, the footballer of the year, the players' player of the year, these guys have got to do more, and they haven't scored anywhere near as many goals. They have mm. had chances so far this season. Ranieri's dropped them, brought them back, dropped them, brought them back. They haven't managed to recapture that sparkle from last season. Vardy's hunger you have to question, because you, if you mm-hmm. get the opportunity to go to Arsenal, having played for Fleetwood in your career, you take it. Mahrez looks to be... A, off the pace and complacent you wonder whether all those big new contracts all those players have had have basically taken away their hunger they think they've done it and that's that's the big problem with Leicester well Leicester a Cinderella club but the clock has just struck midnight their golden carriage is a pumpkin thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 